Greetings and salutations. This is Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung, and here with Colin Hansen and Justin Taylor. Good to have you with us as the band is back together to talk about Life and Books and Everything. We are sponsored by Crossway. Grateful for the many good books that they publish. Want to mention today, just recently released, is the ESV Concise Study Bible. So many people not an exaggeration to say hundreds of thousands of people i don't know justin it's in the millions probably but have made use of the esv study bible and if your arms are tired from carrying that around now you have the esv concise study bible so you still have great resources and notes and uh, i assume justin articles and essays but in a more concise format. So check that out. Anything else you want to say about that new resource, Justin? Nope. It's concise. (laughs) It is. Oh, and that was a concise answer. (laughs) Wonderful. We're going to jump right in. And usually we meander through, well, there's, there's two kinds of listeners to this podcast. There's the listener that says, please do more Big Ten sports banter. And then there are the other 98% of our listeners who say, how many times do I have to hit fast forward 30 seconds before I get through that? So you'll be glad to know we just did all of that for 20 minutes before we hit record. So it's out of our You're system welcome. and uh, all the, uh, the, the, the coaching questions and Nebraska's sad season and Northwestern's Equally also sad, sad season. Also sad. And Michigan State's surprisingly good season. So that's that's as far as we'll uh, go with college football and sports. Uh, usually we meander through a few topics and then we end by talking about books. We love books here and we want to reverse the order. And we want to start by talking about books. So, Colin, we'll start with you. Yeah. Give us a few books. What have you been reading? You can give us uh, books you just started, books you finished in the last uh, weeks or months. Give us uh, whether you like them, love them, or something else. Yeah. What are some of the things you're reading? Let me give two. So these are two books that I read before I recently traveled to to Europe because I thought they would be helpful with some of my preparation for those um, for those visits and. One of them was Brand Luther by Andrew Pedigree. Have you guys read that book? No, I know of him. Good scholar. Yeah. So came out in 2017 with the flurry of 500 years since uh, since 1517 and the famous Wittenberg door. I am always interested reading about Luther. So I've said it before on this podcast, give me Luther and Churchill, and I probably will read a biography of each of them every year. And so Brand Luther was... I liked it because I also work as a as a publisher. So I thought it was interesting the perspective that he brought on Luther, not just as the churchman, not just as the theologian, but also as the master of the printing press and also the master of the popular treatise. So essentially two major arguments in this. One of them is that Luther took a very personal, keen interest in the economics of printing. And in fact, the, the author pedigree says that that's kind of comes out of his father's background in mining and and business and things like that but he says i mean it was a very important thing not only that you know that there was capacity to be able to publish that there would be um, that it would look beautiful that it would look high quality all these things that i just kind of took for granted before i just hadn't hadn't thought about so really liked that book and gave me a new, a new perspective also I don't know. I mean, sometimes major things are the things you overlook. But one thing, guys, that I that he argues here also is that Martin Luther effectively created or invented the popular theological treatise. And I thought, well, I mean, the the epistles certainly I think are that way. Um, but I, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going back because, of course, we know he wrote in the vernacular, so he wrote in German, also, you know. But that that was a major innovation. But I thought. Wow, did he uh, did he invent the popular theological writing? Popular theological writing? He may have. I'm not. I'm, I don't know. I'll defer to you guys. If if you so, can think the of argument would else. be prior to that, 
theological writing was you know by scholastics right. for scholastics for scholastics and in latin and in so latin not, not in a popular language now you would have popular sermons and sermon collections yeah but i suppose theological treatise as its own category um sounds plausible to me i haven't thought about that it's interesting that's what i mean about luther is how many how many books how many biographies i've read about luther and you just seems like there's always something else that you you learn in there. So I'll jump to my other one real quick. Uh, another one that I was so first first part of my first part of my trip last month was in the Nordic countries uh, in in Copenhagen, and then the second was in the Netherlands. And so I read a book by a Dutch missiologist, Stefan Poss, called Pilgrims and Priests, and this was a really interesting reading experience because. A lot of it's focus, focusing on missions in a post-Christian society, and that's a lot of what I was speaking about in Europe. So I wanted to be up to date on some relevant uh, current thought. And there was a lot of really interesting, really helpful stuff in this one. It was written very much from a practitioner perspective as opposed to a high-level academician. But I also was fairly disturbed by the dismissal of aspects of Orthodox theology in there, and also especially uh, the doctrine of hell. And a lot of it just made me, and when I got to the end of it, it just made me come back and say, I'm not quite clear after reading this whole thing exactly what the gospel is saving people from. And when and I see a lot of that, unfortunately, in missiology. And when that was, it turned out, I'm glad I read this book because when I went to the Netherlands, that was a clear area of emphasis that I got within that community. I was speaking on contextualization as an example. And the challenge was, how do you stick with your orthodox theology and at the same time also contextualize it in different in different cultures? And so that was what they had assigned me. And after having read this book, now I understand much more of why they wanted me to talk about that, because sometimes those two things don't go in hand in hand. Contextualization means, OK, we also have to leave behind a number of other outdated theologies. So Pilgrims and Priests by Stefan Poss. Oh, very good. So you're restrained, Colin. Only two. I did. I left. Oh, I knew you'd have about 10, Kevin. So I wanted to feed my time to the gentleman in North Carolina. Yeah, I'm going to limit myself to five. <laughs> so real quickly, one, Oliver Berkman, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. I read one or two productivity, time management-y kind of books a year. And I've probably read 15 of them over the years. And so they, they say a lot of the same things, but almost always there's a handful of best practices or good ideas or reminders. I would say this one is sort of a, a middle of the pack of uh, time management productivity books I've read before. Uh, I think the strength of it is, you can hear it in the title, 4,000 weeks. So he says, on average, we have about 4,000 weeks, which makes your life seem very short. 50 weeks times 80 years, time management for mortals. So it's good in that he's acknowledging our mortality. He sort of tells his story as a time management guru who has come to the realization that just new time management tricks is not really going to help, not really going to fix what ails us. So there's a, a good sense of human finitude that runs through the book which is good, and that we simply have to make hard decisions because we really can't do everything. I also appreciated yeah, some really good paragraphs that convicted me again about not going down the cesspool that can be social media. You know, why are, wh why do we enter in and say, I want a lot of people I don't know, and maybe some I do, I want you to take up a lot of my mental space right now. And I want to just give that gift to you. Why, why do we do that? Um, on the not as good, I think his, his non-Christian bearings come through often in how he views spirituality and how he views religion. So uh, some good things. I'd say it's sort of middle of the pack time management book. Uh, second book is, uh, well, of course, I won't mention Gelzo, but you should listen to the interview I did with him on the Robert E. Lee. That was an amazing interview, Kevin. Well, he's amazing. That I mean, he is an amazing 
to to interview. He is wow. energetic. Wow. He's obviously knowledgeable. His Christian faith comes through. Wow. Yeah, it was really fantastic. You asked great questions, but as somebody who does a lot of interviewing, usually the guest does make that. And Gelzo was no exception. He was simply, I mean, again, I could have listened. If you guys had kept going for three more hours, I might've been the only person left, but I still wouldn't. No, well, I've heard from others and I don't hear that uh, from all of our, all the podcasts I do or interviews, but that was really good. Uh, So another book, Katie Faust and Stacey Manning, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. You heard of that book, either of you guys? Probably George did did a, um, I forget if it's a preface or a foreword to it. Uh, so these are women who are working, there's this organization, Them Before Us, and it's about children's rights. So the, the title there is, We Ought to Put the, the Rights and the Needs of Children Before the Desires and Self-Actualization of Adults. These are conservative women who go through, they're Christians, but it's not a Christian book per se. They go through a lot of medical research, sociology research, go through various topics, uh, arguing why biology matters, why kids need a mom and a dad, why surrogacy is a a selfish thing to do. So uh, talk about transgender. So they hit on any number of hot topics related to family life, sexuality, gender. You know, it's a punchy sort of book, uh, but it, it pulls in, in one place at a popular level and distills a lot of the the larger research on some of those issues. And so if someone's looking for a book that would hit 10 or 12 of those topics, uh, that's a good one. And then uh, last week, I took a, a prayer reading day and uh, got read through start to finish John Kleinig new book from Lexham Press called Wonderfully Made, A Protestant Theology of the Body. We, we need more and more good theologies of the body. He's a Lutheran. So here and there, as it connects with Lutheran theology, I'm not Lutheran. I'm Reformed, obviously, so I didn't agree with all of it. But uh, it's, uh, it's, he, he's a, an older theologian from Australia, Lutheran. He writes in a very understandable way, clear, really a uh, a beautiful book putting forward a positive vision for the body. So again, that it, it touches on all the hot button issues of transgender and human sexuality and homosexuality does so in a, in a very uh, unflinching way, but to use an overused word, winsome way. So good. If you're, if, someone's looking for a book that you might read as a small group at your church or even want to read for your own edification or devotion or a Sunday school class, you could do well to read Wonderfully Made a Protestant Theology of the Body. And then I'll just mention two books that I am not finished, but I started. Colin, you'll be very excited. Yes. The Viking Heart. Yes. My biography. Your biography, the Colin <laughs> Hansen story. You're, you're Danish? Yes. Well, also Norwegian and Swedish. So it really Okay. Did you know this? Do you know the difference between Scandinavian and Nordic? Well, Nordic, I did learn that while I was over there. Nordic includes Iceland and Finland, right? Right. And Scandinavia is just and the then some other islands. Yeah. yeah Faroe, Faroe Islands, right. Faroe Islands. Yeah. Okay. So The Viking Heart by Arthur Herman, uh, he famously wrote the How the Scots Invented the Modern World, which is, is a good book. And uh, he's, uh, he puts a lot of research in. So it's a popular level history, but he's put in a lot of time and effort to distill. And obviously he's talking about the very uh, sweeping history. So the Vikings, you're talking about thousands of years of Nordic history and so talks about the wrath of the Norsemen and then all the way through to the contribution that Nordic countries have made in uh, defending and saving Protestantism, he says, and their contribution in World War II and then in the United States. So I'm not too far into the book and I'm reading it and listening to some of it as I'm on the way. So The Viking Heart, that's a fun book by Arthur Herman. And then I, I 
sadly, I rarely read fiction, but I've been meaning to pick this up again, and I finally did, and now I'm hooked, and I'm about halfway through remembering what I read back in high school. I'm reading 1984 Ah, by George Orwell. Uh, There's more sex in the book than I remember. I'm like, oh, how did I, f- I knew, I knew that Winston had, you know, the, the with Julia, but I, I, I forgot about that. I'm like, oh, that's right. My, my kids read this in high school. I guess I read this in high school. So, I mean, it's, um, it's there, it's not told in great detail, but it is a significant plot point along with the obvious themes of totalitarianism and maybe another podcast, you know, we can talk about George Orwell and, the totalitarian vision. It, it's striking on the one hand, a number of things that aren't true today. So the, the, the totalitarian nightmare he's depicting in part is one that's so sexually repressive. That's why, you know, Winston has this affair with Julia because the party doesn't want you to have any, the, sex is only for producing good future party members. And uh, actually, they they pontificate that part of what the party wants to do is they don't want you to have this enjoyment of sex. So you have all this pent up energy that can only be used for marching and hating your enemy. There was something interesting about that. So that's not our problem today of sexual repression, far from it. But then there are other aspects of it that are becoming all too eerily familiar the the thought police and the face crimes and uh the way you have to watch your back and you can't you you sort of look furtively at people are are they someone who also dares to think differently than than the rest of the world around them and just well written As, as a writer i'm reading it and noticing an economy of words, strong, punchy nouns, verbs, doesn't waste words, strong diction. So you can see why people have read it and it's a classic. There you go. I used up some of your time, Colin. Can I ask you a follow-up question, Kevin? Yeah. Uh, So I've heard of pastors having a prayer day and I've heard of reading days, but what is a prayer reading day? Is that half the time is devoted to prayer and half to reading or? So I took a day and went away for overnight, went away for about 24 hours and spent some of it reading my Bible, some of it literally sitting in a chair and just being quiet and looking out the window for a half hour and uh, went on a long, for me, a long run. So I'll go on a long walk or a long run and I can pray then and think through things that may not have time to sort of ruminate on. And then um, I turned off my phone. I didn't bring any work. I didn't bring my computer. And uh, yeah, had three or four books and made headway on a number of them and tried to do both of them. I've taken just prayer days and I, I wish I could say that I'm really good at just doing nothing but praying for 24 hours, but I'm not. So to pray some of the time and then read books read and, and books. You know, I didn't bring commentaries for my sermon. I didn't bring books that I'm reading through to prepare for RTS, just books on my shelf that I've wanted to get to and read. Sounds wonderful. Oh, it was wonderful. I thought, <laughs> man, I got to do this. I got I to gotta, I gotta get once a week. Once a week is the idea, but no, I, I yeah, I'm not doing it once a week, but something on the calendar would be great. Justin, you read wonderful and terrible uh, book proposals all the time. Do you have time to read <laughs> other books? Yeah, somewhat. Uh, I, I I should be the encouragement to uh, the average listener because I don't read as much as you guys. I don't complete as many books as you guys. So I think I probably start more books than you guys with my job and with my personal <laughs> interest. But I'm reading a book on uh, Ironman uh, triathlons right now. Which has been really no, I'm just kidding. I'm, For real? Kind of books. Wait, what? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. There is a book. There's a book called Iron War, which is about the the famous battles in the the 80s between the. But that's not that's not it. 
<laughs> no. no. Not, yeah, okay. that's not my cup of tea. Uh, so I'll give you I'll give you all books that I have not finished, but I've been dipping into and want to finish if, if the Lord wills. But give me different categories. One in the kind of Bible theology category. I hadn't heard about this, but I somehow stumbled across that Bruce Waltke has a new commentary on the book of Proverbs. And we probably all know of his massive two-volume hardcover Nicot commentary. I don't know when that was published, maybe 15 years ago now, maybe 20. Uh, but this is called Proverbs, a shorter commentary published by Erdman's, and it's co-authored with Ivan D.V. De Silva who is a professor of religious studies adjunct and I think a former student of Dr. Walkie's and interestingly enough, a, a former detective, I believe. So perhaps he used some of those skills and piecing together various things. Uh, so it, it basically abridges the massive Proverbs commentary, but also updates the literature as well. Uh, so that's a, it's been an edifying book to dip into. Walkie is a, a really clear writer, very profound theological mind, uh, and is actually doing a new uh, Psalms commentary, not a commentary, but a, an introduction to the Psalms uh, that Fred Zaspel is helping him with. Uh, Walkie is 92 years old now and still oh, wow. actively working. And um, I believe he's an Anglican now, if I saw that correctly. So that's uh, kind of the Bible theology category. Everybody ends as an Anglican. <laughs> that's where we're all headed. Lincoln, you know that I always have to have something with Lincoln going on. Uh, and the three of us, I think, briefly discussed this book, but The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown and Abraham Lincoln and the Struggle for American Freedom, H.W. Brand. Yeah, I'm about halfway through that. I, I stalled out over the summer. Yeah, it, he, he's an interesting he's an interesting author. He does a lot with primary sources, sort of here's John Brown and his own words in a letter and here's Abraham Lincoln and pretty short chapters going back and forth between the two. So, uh, yeah, it, it's good. I, I know a whole lot more about Abraham Lincoln than John Brown. My knowledge of John Brown is from other just larger civil war sort of history. So I'm learning a lot about John Brown. Uh, so I liked it. I got halfway through. I think I was losing patience. Like, man, are we, are we up to Harper's Ferry or what? When is this going <laughs> to happen. But what did you think about it? Yeah, I'm not too far into it, but I like the idea of dual biographies. I've always liked that. I, I'm sure it's one of those things that is, it's hard to do well, but when it is done well, it's interesting to set two people in different contexts, sort of in dialogue with each other. And I think James Oakes did one of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. And, and Brand's, I read an interview one time where he said that he's, he's sort of secretly writing a history of America through biography, but he never told his publishers. But he has this whole concept in his mind of eventually telling the American story through biography. So he's done Andrew Jackson and Aaron Burr and some of the financial titans. And uh, he's an interesting author because I think he, if, if listeners don't recognize the name, if you see his picture, you'll recognize him from any history documentary because he's one of those yeah. interesting talking heads. He's He's able to convey in a storytelling mode the, the history of what was going on. And um, so I like to read history to, to know what happened, but I also am interested in seeing how people write history. And then I just ordered a new Lincoln book. I wonder if you guys have heard of this by Ronald White. That that name ring a bell? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. American Ulysses on Grant. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it wrote A. Lincoln. He's a Christian. I don't know exactly of, of what kind, but uh, he's probably done as much as anybody in terms of writing on Lincoln's words and speeches. And so there's a new one by him, uh, Lincoln in Private, what his most personal reflections tell us about our greatest president. And basically he's going through, Lincoln would write something on a scrap of paper, throw it in his desk, and 13 years later he'd refer to it, almost like if we had a you know Word documents or Post-it notes. Uh, but unless you, I mean, there's really no way to kind of pull all of those together unless you visit multiple libraries or work through multiple volumes. And Ronald White uh, has pulled those all together and, and tried to kind of give us the more private side of Lincoln, which is tricky to do. 
that was one thing interesting about Gelzo's interview with Kevin is how difficult it is to tra- to track down everything from Lincoln. How yeah. spread around it is. From Lee. So, from, oh, yeah. Sorry. From Lee, Lee also. Yeah. Also, sorry. Yeah. That's what I meant. Both of them, same thing. Yeah. With all of the history work, you would have thought there would be a critical edition of someone would have collected all of the letters. and But it's amazing sometimes yeah. some of the things that aren't done. My, my PhD supervisor is working on, in England, a massive multi-year decades project to publish uh, a critical edition of all of Wilberforce's letters. And that will be a major undertaking to get them, to find them, to try to read them, transcribe them. And man, we, we owe a lot to historical grunt work from people who do those sorts of things and then provide those resources for for decades or centuries for people to then call through and use. But what were you going to say, Justin? Yeah, I'm not sure what I was going to say, but it is striking that somebody like Robert E. Lee with how much the civil war has been covered. And, you know, it's not like nobody's written a biography of him before that, that someone somewhere, some center wouldn't have transcribed every letter that he's ever written. And that makes your job pretty, not easy, but easier as a biographer, just, you know, pull down those letters, copy and paste and put them in your narrative. But when you have to travel uh, to a place and sit in a dusty library and try to transcribe letters, that's, that's amazing. I have a one fiction book that I've started, which I don't know if I'll make my way through it because it's thick. It's Lonesome Dove. And I'm curious if you guys have ever finished it. Probably Collins read it like no. once a year. But uh, <laughs> no, I... I haven't read a lot of Western or watched much Western uh, literature or film. So I was as good as the hype. Justin, I hear a lot of hype. That's for sure. Um, I am on page 16. So uh, not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. It's more comedic than I expected, but the, the blurb on the back from USA today says, if you read only one Western novel in your life, read Lonesome Dove and it won the Pulitzer prize. So uh, it will probably be the only Western I, I read from now on. Although my grandfather wrote that Western novel. Your grandfather did? He did. He was a, a farmer and a chef in South Dakota and uh, at night worked on a novel. And I have it printed in my office. It, it was self-published uh, posthumously. but So it, it's in my bloodstream, but I, I haven't finished that one either. All right. Well, that's a perfect segue to something else, but everyone look up Justin's grandfather's sod-busting South Dakota story. I, from, Buckskin I, Moon from, by Glenn Taylor. Oh, I I'm thought it was be from Jackrabbits to Buckskin. <laughs> I'm expecting a copy in the mail, Justin. Just so All right. <laughs> it's like that uh, famous time when I was interviewing Ligon and asked like his favorite book of all time, and it was... I won't even get it now, but it was something about the low country of, or the up country or some such country of (laughs) South Carolina. And I just, and then immediately after I sort of guffawed, his brother Mel sent me a copy of the book in the mail (laughs) post haste and probably would to any listener who wants to know more about the history of South Carolina. And and where is it on your shelves that I'm looking at right behind you, Kevin? I'm sure. I know. Isn't it somewhere? (laughs) It is somewhere. I still have it to pull off. Probably on your nightstand. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 All right. So here's what I want to talk about. Now that we've talked about books, I want to talk about elites so let me give some, some context and then my opening salvo, and then we'll see where the conversation goes. A number of articles or posts have been written in the past week or two about evangelical elites. Mark Galley, in his newsletter, was decrying his own former employer and uh, at CT, and as he said it, uh, a tendency to want to play nice with cultural elites. At least that was one of the themes. You also have uh, Carl Truman, who wrote uh, a lengthy, and as Carl's pieces are, you know, very well-read, educated, interesting piece at First Things. He was making some of those same points, uh, and in particular, arguing that the 
the days of Noel and Marsden advocating for just the best Christian scholarship to overcome the the scandal of the evangelical mind and the people in the academy will see our work and praise us and bless us for doing the the best scholarship we can, that that's just not going to work anymore. There's too many cultural obstacles in most fields. That was some of Carl's argument. And and, uh, Tommy Kidd gave uh, something of a response to Carl's piece, agreeing with some of it and pushing back on other aspects. And then uh, over the weekend, David French wrote also about evangelical elites. And as you might guess, uh, not entirely disagreeing with what Carl might be saying, but his take is more along the lines of, okay, well, yes, we know that there, there are those problems, but really the the larger issues in our churches have to deal with this reactionary moment among conservative Christians. And if we want to see the problem, it is us and the problem of the elites not dealing with uh, their own kind. So uh, I'm not so interested in us picking winners and losers of those arguments. Uh, All of us know at one level, all of those men, and there are other people who have weighed in on it. But it is such a hot topic. I thought we'd talk about it. And here's my opening salvo, not to so much solve the question, but to complexify And that is to ask what I think is often missing from some of these, you know, good, thoughtful critiques is a definitional question. Who are the elites? And we should say at the outset, uh, lest someone say, physicians, heal thyself. I'm sure by some measure, uh, Colin Hansen, Justin Taylor, Kevin DeYoung are elites uh, so not trying to pretend like we're looking from some uh, high mountaintop and not affected or not in the mix of all of these things. But what, what's interesting to me, and I don't know the, the history of it, somebody could argue for this, but it seems to me uh, elite has certainly become a, an almost uniformly bad word. And I wonder if that's always been the case. Now, there are still contexts where if somebody said, oh, my son is an elite athlete, Uh, my daughter is an elite musician, that would still be considered a compliment. But in almost any context in our culture, if you are considered among the elites, that's not a compliment that somebody's paying to you. Almost surely, some sort of critique is going to come that you of the elites have not done something, have not guarded something, protected something, promoted something. I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong. I'm just, first of all, noting that the word itself connected to that, it seems we we can't escape that this whole discussion is both produced by the internet and is an internet phenomenon. Meaning one of the reasons surely that we're suspicious of elites, often for good reasons. I'm not saying that there aren't good reasons to be suspicious of some elites or to point out their failures, but certainly it has to do with the internet that more than ever before, we can hear from anybody and everybody. And so there, there is no just one or two or a handful of elite voices. And the internet itself is destabilizing to any notion of elites or elite institutions or elite gatekeepers. There, it's not at all a coincidence, and we've talked about this before, that we live in a day of, of populist upswell and uprisings for good and for bad all over the world, politically all over the world, in our country, on the right and on the left, and even within ecclesiastical circles, because the internet is in many ways an engine of populist foment. And then here's my my last thought in this opening salvo, and then maybe Justin, get ready to solve the problem for us. I'll turn it to you next. But you think about who who are the elites? Uh, Who are the the people that we're looking for? Now, many people have made the observation, I've heard Jonah Goldberg say this, and he's right. We're, we're going to have elites. It's just a question of whether you have good ones or bad ones. So it, 
if we pretend that, you know what, the answer is we won't have elites. You know, probably the people who are going to say that really loudly are actually elites. <laughs> so there are going to be elites. There are going to be people who control levers of power, authority. There are going to be people who have bigger followings. There are going to be people who have a platform. So there will be elites in any movement, any culture. There just will be. So the question is, what sort of elites are they? And it seems to me there's a lot of different ways to define an elite. Is an elite someone based on certain skills, capabilities, characteristics? You do this, so you're an elite. So is it a is it a gift ability character sort of thing? Is it a position of authority? Is it you're a president of something, you are uh, have an endowed chair at some institution that has cultural cachet, you uh, have a position at the commanding heights of culture and media. So is it a position in an institution? Is it a, is it a platform? So whether you have a, a position or not, if you write a lot and speak a lot online and people follow you, does that make you an elite? Or on, on the most the, the most kind of existential sort of practical level, is an elite, you could look at an elite like this. If, if you wrote a piece or if you said something publicly about why you should or shouldn't vote for Donald Trump, would a lot of people start talking about that? If they did or would, or whatever sort of you know hot take you have, if everyone would start talking, that probably means you're some level of an elite, someone who you know, they can speak till they're red in the face. And if nobody is talking about it, are they an elite? So we have all sorts of different kinds of elites. Um, or at least maybe that's one of the questions. Are Is it really so different? Certainly the internet gives us a different way to have elites and it allows different people to be elite in a certain sphere or culture of influence but it also destabilizes the normal mechanisms of protection in publishing, guarding, et cetera. So I got more thoughts. That didn't solve anything, but it just complexifies the issue to ask that central question, uh, who are the elites that either need to do their job or haven't done their job? Justin, what say you? I think you're right, Kevin, that elite still has positive connotations when we're talking about uh, performance or reaching a certain level. If you're an elite financial advisor, if you're an elite athlete uh, that, that has positive connotations, I think what has negative connotations is the idea of elitism or being an elitist. And so it's difficult to separate out someone who's an elite not necessarily for the fact that they run faster, lift more, or make more money than everybody else. But I think those words tend to get jumbled up in our, our connotative index to coin a term. So uh, you don't find many people bragging about being an elite in terms of having opinions or influence or movements or those sort of things. I think the populism angle that you mentioned is significant as well. There are certain segments of evangelicalism right now who seem to be tapping more into the populist vein, and that allows them to avoid the term elitist because the elites are the object of their own criticism. So they can posture themselves as sort of a man of the people or a woman of the people uh, speaking on behalf of the silent majority uh, versus those people pulling the power levers behind the curtain. So I don't know how important it is to, to define it other than to note that there's not one definition and it tends to be used as a term of abuse. It tends to be used as a critique of someone to your left or to your right that you don't like. So I think if you are operating with a relatively objective definition, feel free to use it. But if you use it just merely as a term of derision, uh, I don't think that's entirely fair. 
And I think the galley piece, by the way, if if listeners haven't seen, is a Substack piece that Mark Galley wrote. But then he followed it up this weekend with another piece uh, that's more self-critical, saying that he was not intending to throw former colleagues under the bus, which I think is pretty disputable. But he then turns the focus upon himself yeah, and his own I'd temptations say, yeah. with elitism. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting move by Galley's part. But maybe add just one more thing and then... Colin will set us all straight here. I think, going back to Mark's original piece, we should be really cautious of judging people's motives. And uh, that's a word for myself, as it is much a word to someone like Mark Galley. Motives are notoriously difficult to suss out. Um, We can talk, I think, more confidently about a writer's posture or inclination or suspicion or the fact that they've moved from where they have been previously and seem to be going in a certain direction. But uh, to try to identify someone's motives for why they're doing something, I think is always puts you on somewhat perilous grounds. doesn't mean, I mean, some motives are obvious. Some people confess to their motives, but I think whenever we're talking about, elites, whether, again, to the left of us or to the right of us, which just use caution before assigning a bad motive to somebody who's doing something perhaps differently than we would do. Justin, that's a really good word because such is our human nature that we rarely, in trying to evaluate someone's motives, impute to them better motives. So as we might do that in, mm. in a really strong friendship or relationship, we try to give people the benefit of the doubt. But in these intramural disputes or people at a distance uh, and even people close to us, rarely do we think, you know what? I bet their motives were really, they were trying their best to serve the Lord and just trying to do it. And life is complicated. And it's hard to even know our own motives. Uh, You know, we have mixed motives even on the best of days. So to your point, Justin, it doesn't mean that it's irrelevant, and sometimes uh, it's worth talking about, but there ought to be a caution because what may be to us an obvious, and all of us, all three of us have done this because we're sinners. We've, we've also had it done to us in public things we've said or written. Oh, now we know what this is all about. This, is, this shows what a, an awful person he is, and now we see his real motives rather than dealing with what's actually been said or written or heaven forbid giving somebody the benefit of the doubt and trying to assume that perhaps they had even better motives colin what do you think i know you've thought a lot about this yeah probably uh probably more than i needed to um so we're we're talking especially about evangelical elites here and i think that's important to say because evangelicalism is not an institution So if we're talking about politics here, you could talk about the Republican Party, you could talk about the Democratic Party, you could talk about Congress, White House, judiciary, um, the bureaucracy, you could talk about a lot of different things. But in terms of evangelical elites, there's no there's no position, essentially, there's no there's no place. So interestingly, you you touched on this, Kevin, but uh, we're not so much talking about denominational figures or even pastors. Um, In some ways, we are. But, you know, they're, they're supposed to, their institutions are not evangelicalism. So they may be evangelical elites, but they're not the evangelical. They're not big Eva, essentially. I, first of all, I find that to be very confusing, but I think it, it makes sense in terms of the dynamics of evangelicalism is this trans-denominational network thing. And who are the people who control the networks there? So essentially, it seems like we're talking about colleges seminaries and publishers all of which are represented on this call so i think that's how we conferences perhaps yeah conferences i think they're often offshoots of those but you're but you're right um so that's i think how we end up in the big eva category but if you're the head of the southern baptist executive committee you're not which is really strange but that's i think why that dichotomy works that these are the trans-denominational networks of evangelicalism as opposed to the denominations, the churches. So that that'll make a lot more sense of what I'm gonna what I'm gonna say here about evangelical elites. So 
I want to. I think the the insinuation or the explicit critique that came through in a number of the of the essays that you cited, Kevin, is that at the elites have an elitist. Justin, you, get, you had a good distinction there. They have an elitist attitude that scoffs at regular evangelicals. Essentially, the the critique seems to be that they are out of step with real evangelicals. Because they want to be, now I'm not sure it's ever explicitly stated, but it seems to be because they want to fit in um, or they want to, they want to make money. One of the two there seems to be the, the guess. I'm not sure what other motivation there would be. And this is significant because large churches are all over the place. A denominational leader can be a number of different places, but publishers, colleges, and seminaries do tend to be in certain locales. They do tend to be in bigger cities, or they do tend to culturally um, be a little more liberal in general. So I think that's, again, part of where the insinuation comes of, of the sellout. And I think we can easily identify that there are a lot of examples of this in, in evangelical history. The person who is the, the institution that is supposed to convey evangelical beliefs, but because of their desire to be a part of the guild or to fit in or to, to, to play to their, you know, to, to their guild's requirements, they, they change their faith. If that were not the case, then a lot of Christian colleges would still be Christian today and not what they are. So that just kind of lays the groundwork for what I'm going to say here, and I'm interested to get your guys' thoughts on this. So I want to go back to the Public Religion Research Institute survey in March of 2018 and asked evangelicals, I think this was white evangelicals, but it was asking them, what should the priority of government be? And the number one response was reducing healthcare costs. That was number one for white evangelicals. Number two was reducing the budget deficit. Number three was addressing the opioid epidemic. Number four was immigration reform. Number five, anti-immigration laws, and number six, gun control. Now, in, this was a little bit confusing for me. Gun control, I think, is on here because it was a priority for government, and it was gun control. It was already loaded as a term. So I think it was a bottom priority because they didn't want the government to do gun control. <laughs> so I think that's why it was there. So just a weirdly worded uh, question there. I, I, let me take it a step further then. Same um, same survey, 25% of white evangelicals said that their candidate must share their view on abortion. 25, one out of four. 45% said that abortion should be only somewhat not too or not at all difficult to get. Means less than 20% of white evangelicals think that abortion should be completely illegal. Okay, so the reason I'm saying this is because one of the explicit critiques was evangelical elites are sellouts when it comes to abortion. They just want to be able to fit in. So they hide those beliefs and that's how they get published in the New York Times or, or things like that. But I think the biggest example of how elites are out of step is not on abortion because the survey shows that I don't know how much of a priority abortion is and I'll get to that a little bit more in a second. But the main way that evangelicals elites are out of sync with evangelicals is on immigration. And I say this when it comes to um, when it, I mean, my background being in Republican politics for decades, Republican politicians were pro-immigration, but Republican voters were not. As a clear example of, of, of an elite that is disconnected from the actual voters. And that really changed 2015 and 2016, of course, with Senator Sessions here in Alabama and then ultimately President Trump. And. I would say another example of this, of, of how elitists are very much out of step, is that your typical Christian college professor and seminary graduate, I would even say, cares way more about ethnic diversity and watches way less Fox News and listens to way less Clay Travis on talk radio. I think that's, I think that's fair to say. I don't think that's even a controversial thing. I think that means they're very much out of step in terms of not having the same view on those things. Add to that, they also probably, because of what I mentioned earlier, they tend to spend way more time around liberals. Uh, Christian college professors, publishers, just where they're located, they tend to spend more time around liberals. 
and work in fields, especially in the academy, that are dominated by liberals. And I mentioned that we could all cite examples of, of capitulation, whether the motive might be. And I would say it's also fair to say that when you're talking about fitting into the broader culture, that, that seems to, again, be the elites want to fit in, and that's why they're out of step with everybody else. Then it's going to be sexual issues. That's, that's always the king of the intersectionality Olympics. It's always sexual issues. So the, the view is you've got to toe the line on those issues. And I, I think that temptation is very clear. And I think you can see that all over the place. And, and anyway, so let me jump in, let, kind of my wrap up here. I think what we're talking about here more than anything else is something that the three of us have discussed quite a bit, including on this podcast, is really the phenomenon of the inner ring of a simple desire. You want to be able to fit in. You want to be able to fit in with the people that you care about. You don't care about fitting in with those people that you don't care about. But the, ever, there, the society is full of inner rings, and the elites are one of those inner rings. And there's a million different inner rings, to put it mildly, among the elites right there. And that's why I think this discussion w could be framed very differently about how all of us tend to want to fit in, and we tend to want to think tend to think tribally about this and what will keep me in good terms with the in crowd. This is a, this is on brand for this podcast, but I was visiting my, visiting my family earlier this spring and I was, you know, driving the pickup truck and listening to the WNAX out of, uh, out of South Dakota. And all of a sudden you can just almost feel all these assumptions begin to make sense suddenly in a different context messages reinforced. I think there's just, when you're around a lot, who wants to be the one person who's always out of step with everybody else, no matter where you are, you just, you want to fit in there. And I will say um, this, that when you put, when you put all of this together, the one area where you're really, really, really going to be out of step today across the board is if you're out of step with liberals when it comes to sex and when you're out of step with conservatives, when it comes to race, that, that you're basically, you're just not fitting in anywhere in our political dynamic and our cultural dynamic. And it's not a very fun place to be. And then let me connect this back. And then we can, there's, I gave a lot of, put out a lot out there, but if you're an elite publisher, let's bring this back to the beginning. And all of us would be, you know, kind of connected to this world. If you're an elite publisher you know a couple things. One of them is that you won't publish on abortion. You'll be very tempted not to because the sales aren't there. I can say that, I mean, if I'm big Eva internet site guy, we publish on abortion all the time and it just, people just aren't interested in it. It just doesn't get read. You can conclude that what you want. And if you publish on race, you will get a lot of attention, but you will get a ton of hate you will get a ton of hate of that. So this concept of fitting in, of wanting to be liked by other people, I think broadens the conversation in a way that shows that all of us are tempted in these ways and elites are tempted maybe in certain ways. Okay, I threw a lot out there. All right. Well, Colin, as usual, has the, the big macro <laughs> view. There's a lot, of, a lot of trees in that forest. I won't try to... <laughs> Pick at Pick I think I agree Pick with one. with um, eighty five percent of that. Yeah. So let me uh, let pick me on just, the fifteen. Pick on no, the fifteen. No, well, let, let me let me distill uh, yeah. a few other thoughts. I'll try to be real quick, and some of this overlaps with what you said. But number one, every group is going to have some measure of elites. You can you can start a conference tomorrow and a publishing site tomorrow that's all aimed at how bad whatever whatever big media whatever big people whatever put big in front of it big pharma big whatever and if your new thing has any what's that pj fleck oh yeah, <laughs> well, big pj fleck um big big husker nation so whatever you do if that has any success 
somebody's going to decide who speaks at your conference. Somebody's going to decide who who publishes on your site. Somebody is still going to have some lever of authority. In what do you do with making. all the media, all, all the money that comes in? Yeah, and, and if you a ton of money, and if you so I'm just if you want that new thing, which is against the elites, to have any sort of brand consistency, you're going to have to have elites who are calling the shots somewhere there. So that, that's first. Second, and you said this well, Colin, and so did Justin, but we all have a crowd that we are inclined to appease. If not to appease, that may be too strong, not to upset. Yeah. And sometimes it's for very selfish prideful reasons it could be that's why we don't we don't know our own motivations sometimes maybe it is for money maybe it is connections maybe it is smoke filled back rooms other times it's well boy this person said this and you know what i have a relationship with them or there's a a, a network that i'm in and well i don't i'm going to deal with this privately or i'm going to sit this one out because there's a relational cost or an institutional cost, and it doesn't seem wise. When when you have no institution to account for, it's much easier to, you know, I, I, when I was younger, I always felt like, man, why don't people just always say exactly what they think about everything? That would just be easy. Well, those people don't in time build things because you have to know when you say and when you wait for another day and when you work behind the scenes. So we all have that inclination. Uh, just that's two, three. And this is where some of the, uh, where I, I do agree with uh, some of Galley's emphases and some of what Carl said. Uh, and I don't know that the others would necessarily disagree, but we do have to be prepared to, to stand out. I was just preaching last uh, Sunday evening on 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And it's true. Uh, many people have made this observation, but it used to be for most of the history in this country that to be a Christian was a, a net positive. It was good social for your social standing. And that wasn't all bad. It, civil religion wasn't all bad. It made converting to Christianity uh, more palatable, easier. The downside was it led to a lot of hypocrisy and nominalism. Then you move to Christianity as a net neutral. And I think that was some of the critique saying we've moved past that stage where, okay, as long as I do my job, I'm tolerant of other viewpoints, and I show that I can do the best work possible, you know, the broader world of Hollywood, the academy, media, big corporations, they'll, they'll, I can still rise to the top. I just have to be respectful of others and disagreements and show that I can do the work better than anybody else. And that world does still exist in some parts of the country, in some industries. So real quick, just to, to land this very long soliloquy plane that Colin and I have been flying separately to Justin's chagrin, uh, yeah, we need to be prepared to stand out. And the days of Christianity being a net cultural positive or even a net neutral are gone in many places and certainly in most places of the academy. And that's where Carl's point was certainly well taken. We need to be prepared to have a Christianity with a cost. And then the last thing is to say, I don't, you know, this is critical. Maybe it's self-critical if we're of the elites or critical of whoever the elites have been of evangelicalism. Uh, I think many evangelicals in evangelicalism uh, have been prone to miss uh, a mood and to see it. And maybe a first reaction of some elites is to be dismissive of it and some of this populist mood needs to be critiqued, but I think it is always a danger of whoever, wh whatever you elite you are by some definition. If you're an elite by definition, something's working for you. You've people have listened to you. You have a position of some kind. You have a platform of some kind, and so there always is going to be a danger for those people to think, well look, just 
just do what we did. Just play by the rules. Just why are you so upset about things? And so I think there is a real critique there to miss a mood that things aren't working for lots of people. And there is a good reason to be fearful, not in a quivering sort of way, but fearful of many things that are changing rapidly in our culture. And I think when elites are quick to be dismissive of that and think that any sort of consternation over that is a problem. And if we just, uh, here's what I'm saying. We, we can't just out nice our way. If that was ever the case, we can't do that anymore. If we just are nice enough, doggone it, people will like us. And that has been somewhat a failure of elites across the board. And, and, you know, just to be fair, nobody, Nobody has navigated these last five years very well. There's just been so many issues, so many difficult issues. And the the internet, we forget, is what has made so many of these things possible in good ways and really bad in other ways. So that, enough for that. Colin or Justin, any final thoughts? Yeah, Kevin, um, I'm just going to quickly give an example of what you talked about right there, and then I'll toss it over to Justin to wrap up there. But the one example of that would be the way uh, Brad Wilcox and other sociologists will point this out, the way evangel uh, elites in politics tend to be dismissive of the significance of marriage. Um, but there's, but there's a, But they practice that. They practice marriage, but they don't preach it to others. So they say for everybody else, it's not that big a deal, but of course they know it's a big deal. So they do that. So that's kind of that mood that they kind of miss the way working class communities have dissolved as, as the sexual revolution has destroyed the nuclear family in many different ways, or in some ways, the economy has helped to contribute to that downfall. So they'll say on both sides, you can, on both po political sides, you can see problems there. And um, that's, a good, that's an easy example for me to say, because that's where my disagreement with the elite opinion is, is seen. But I'm sure we can come up with many examples toward ourselves. Justin, do you have some words to, to wrap up? Well, I just want to go back quickly, Colin, to your mention of The Inner Ring by C.S. Lewis. And uh, ashamedly, I didn't think of that essay when this whole elite discussion was going on, but it really is apropos. And I think it was Andrew Wilson, perhaps, who mentioned that uh, local church elders should read Lewis's essay together once a year and just give you one quote from it. He says, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods and in many men's lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. It's just really a, a timeless essay that we all need to take to heart. Uh, that that desire to be in the inner ring. And if we have any level of influence, we're going to be in an inner ring. And uh, it's it's good to heed Lewis's advice and to be aware of it and to work against some of the unfortunate tendencies that tend to obtain when we are part of such a, a club or a culture. It's a great word, Justin. Let me uh, Let me just end by trying to encourage pastors. And let me say to all our listeners, lest you think we are elites, you should see how convoluted our technology abilities are. <laughs> we never can get this thing started. And um, the power went out here. I dropped out. We can't see Justin. He can't Somebody hear me. stole my mic. Somebody yeah, stole my so, mic. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, if this is a bit disjointed, that's, that's why, because we are certainly not elites when it comes to podcasting capabilities. No, uh, but I, I did want to just land on trying to encourage. I know we have lots of different listeners, but for pastors, it can. And somebody pointed out that uh, it is interesting how the conversation about elites usually takes place without pastors. I mean, it, it's it's people who have other sorts of platforms, and we're happy to listen to those people, and I benefit from them. And but. It, it can be dispiriting to be a pastor. Here's a, a tweet. I don't know, you know, I'm not even familiar with this person, but uh, this was a tweet that I think Justin pointed out uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it, it really hit home with me as a pastor. 
He said, as social media and society focuses almost exclusively on bad pastors and bad pastoring, there is almost no cultural support or encouragement for sincere, struggling pastors. It is a thankless job outside of the encouragement of some faithful saints and within the congregation. Next tweet. As an example, I usually face many critical responses of pastors and the church at large whenever I post anything that addresses the needs of sincere pastors. Some do not want that discussion to be made public. This harms the general health of the church and church leaders. Douglas Burst, B-U-R-S-C-H. Um, not even familiar with him, but uh, thank you, brother. This is a very good word. And it is easy to, whether we're talking about elites or we're talking about, you know, the Mars Hill podcast and the abuse of authority, which in elites have failed at times and power gets abused. All of that is true. And yet in the midst of it, it can seem very discouraging for the local church pastor who's sitting there saying, ah, where, where do I fit in? What, what, what support is there for me? I'm trying to prepare a sermon this week. I don't have time to way into these meta evangelical discussions. Now I'm, uh, people are suspicious of my own uh, influence or authority and what sort of support is there for me in the midst of uh, two years that have a tumultuous election and uh, race riots and we're back to fighting about masks again and all of that. And so just want to encourage brother pastors out there to keep your hand to the plow and Pay attention to your Greek and your Hebrew and your English Bible before you listen to podcasts like this, before you need to be well-informed on the controversy du jour. Your labors are not in vain, and your work matters, and your sermon matters, and it's always a burden of mine, I'm sure, because I am a pastor, to want to encourage the local church pastor in the midst of all these larger discussions, which can be dizzying and at times feel like wow, we're, we're all failing. No, brother, you're very likely not failing in your compassion and your care and your hard work to care for that flock. Justin, Colin, thank you for being here in the midst of technical difficulties, and we'll try to do it again. Until next time, glorify God, enjoy him forever, and read a good book. <laughs>